It is good to be with you this morning. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to Hebrews chapter 4. What a blessing to sing glorious truths together with the saints, lifting Christ high in this place. So as you're finding Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to be focused on the passage that our grace verse is, is on this month. We're looking at verses 14 through 16. So you can keep your Bibles open. I actually want to begin um, by making note of something that's happening in Kentucky. So perhaps you have heard or have read by now about events taking place on the campus of Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. I want to begin by saying that we need revival. Thinking back to the first Great Awakening, that revival was driven by preaching that emphasized the biblical truths of the holiness of God, the gravity of sin, man's bondage to sin, and the need for the Holy Spirit to give new birth so that people might repent, believe, and be saved. They believed this spiritual movement had been caused by God's sovereign choice to pour out His Spirit in a profound and unusual way, causing the ordinary, biblically appointed means of preaching and evangelism to bear extraordinary fruit. God sometimes blessed these labors remarkably, And sometimes he didn't. These revivals, in other words, were neither planned by men nor achieved by men. They did not involve any unusual or new evangelistic techniques. They were understood to be a gift of God. So I don't want us to confuse external acts with inward change as you're observing all that's happening up there. I don't want us to equate outward success with a divine endorsement. I think a professor of evangelism at Southern Seminary said this best. As we're observing all that's, that's happening, how do you tell if it is really a work of God? It's not how high you jump, it's how straight you walk when you land. And so we want to pray for what's happening up there, and I believe that time will tell whether or not it is fruit of the Lord. And then lastly, Ian Murray, in his book, Revival and Revivalism, writes of the earlier generation of ministers who regarded revival as a gift from God. The men of the old school, while believing in revival as fervently as they did, nevertheless knew No biblical reason to be cast down by the normal. These men knew that most of the time, ministry is slow and plodding work. They knew that some sow and others reap. They believed that God would grant his blessing in the measure that was appropriate to him. Whether it is in a heightened form or in more quieter ways. So, 
I do not want us to be discouraged by slow ripening fruit. We have just uh, this past week celebrated eight years of a church plant here, Grace Covenant Church, and in many ways, things have moved rapidly by God's grace, and in other ways, we refer to ourselves as kind of a slow, a, a crockpot, kind of a slow cooker, where the Lord is doing his work, and over the years, we have seen him produce amazing fruit in our midst. But I don't want us to be discouraged, but rely on God to work through the regular means of grace. And so what um, Ian Murray encourages the readers of his book, Revival and Revivalism, is to celebrate the normal means of God's grace and at the same time fervently pray for God's sovereign choice to pour out his spirit in a profound and unusual way. And so I wanted to begin by going to the Lord in prayer uh, in regards to uh, the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, as we, many of us, surely at this point have heard and seen and listened to people make observations of all that is happening on this campus in Kentucky. Lord, our desire, our prayer this morning is that you would, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, let your word go forth in a mighty way in that place, knowing, knowing that there are many coming. May it be sound biblical truth, a clear gospel proclamation of what our risen Savior has accomplished on behalf of sinners. Lord, we pray that you would move in mighty ways as you see fit. And Lord, for many of us who have never seen or heard of movements like what's happening there, we pray that you would give us the posture of humility, of people who long to see you move in mighty ways, while at the same time rejoicing in the normal means of God's grace, what you have established and given to the local church and where so many faithful ministers and elders are, are persevering and, and, and striving the day-to-day hardships of, of ministry in a local church setting. Lord, we think of our brother Ralph even now, Ralph and Maureen in Gunnison, where for years they have been proclaiming the gospel and discipling and, and evangelizing, and yet it has been a slow grind. May they not be discouraged as they are in the trenches serving you faithfully Father, we pray that we would experience your blessing in times of abundance and in times of need, as we've been reminded in our Sunday school class this morning. God, you are good, and you do good, and your providence at times is difficult, and at times it is amazing to experience. May we, may we be resolute in understanding that you are God and we are not. And you move in ways that sometimes are outside of what we would normally imagine seeing. And maybe we be ones who pray for that outpouring of the Spirit in profound and amazing ways. And we pray this all now as we open up your word. In Christ's name, amen. All right, when we're looking at Hebrews chapter 4, I actually want to start reading in verse 11, and then we will read through the end of the chapter. And so please follow along as I read from God's word. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. 
For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hear the word of the Lord. Where we were last week, looking at verses 11 through 13, we saw very clearly that the word of God lays us bare, reveals to the core, to the depth of our being, that there really is nothing good in us. It also reveals that we are in great need of help. That is, this living and active word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. After hearing these realities, the author of Hebrews turns to the only theme that can satisfy a guilty and terrified conscience. If you hear verse 13, there should be a response. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We look to the high priestly work of Christ to see the balm needed for those exposed wounds, the reality of our hearts laid bare before God. There are important warnings that we have heard in the book of Hebrews that we must hear. We must hear about the unbelief of the the people of Israel in the wilderness, the spiritual peril of unbelief in the midst of, of wilderness trials. It is to prod believers of our complacency. Nothing could be more senseless than for us to abandon our confession because of the enticement of the world or the pain of our pilgrimage. But the author doesn't leave us there. And then we also need to hear offerings of encouragement grounded in God's grace and mercy. To know and stand in awe of God's gracious disposition towards those who run to the great high priest. Despite weakness and sin, we are able, we're told in this passage, to approach the throne of grace because of what Christ has accomplished. Our passage this morning has a further description of a great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, that was started actually back in chapter 2. So if you're kind of looking around in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2, this theme of our great high priest was introduced to us. We are encouraged by the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, to trust in Christ 
because of his greatness and his power. Verse 14 tells us, because he has gone through the heavens, which is an interesting phrase, that should actually build up our trust in Christ. And so we're going to spend some moments looking at verses 14, 15, and 16 and see how the work of this great high priest actually builds us up, builds confidence in us, gives us a firm foundation, an assurance that cannot be shaken by the things that press in against us from the world. So since he has passed through the heavens... That phrase, I want us to to ponder for a bit. This introduction to the high priest that was first introduced in chapter 2, and now really we're going to see at the end of 4 and into 5, and even further into Hebrews, this unpacking, this opening up the idea of what a high priest is or was for the people of Israel and our great high priest. For some, I was thinking, you know, if you have not spent a lot of time in the Old Testament, even the idea of a high priest may seem very foreign. But there is such glorious truths in understanding that we have a great high priest. And so I pray by the help of the Spirit that we're able to start scratching at those truths and revealing just how glorious this is for those who were once dead in their trespasses and sins, separated from fellowship and communion with the most holy and awesome God, because of a great high priest, that has been forever changed. There is no longer a chasm in between a sinner like me and a holy and righteous God. And so I, I, I pray that, that this idea, this truth of a great high priest just resonates with us. And it actually does what it is said to do, that it actually builds up in us a confidence to enter into the presence of God. So in contrast to the high priest of the Levitical order, he was allowed to enter in or pass by the people and enter into the holy place, the the earthly sanctuary, and and with that, taking the, the blood of atonement once a year. And so I want you to have this kind of image. There was a, a point in time where the high priest who was set aside or dedicated, assigned by God, this wasn't just any man who thought he was holy and right to be able to do this. This was one who was set aside by God once a year, would pass by the people. So they would, they would see what's happening, and then he would, he would leave their vision. He would go in to the sanctuary. That imagery helps you understand what the author is saying when he talks to, about Jesus passing through the heavens. So where once Jesus was seen on earth with the disciples, with the apostles, even before his death, and then after his death, burial, and resurrection, he again was seen by his disciples. He, he left their sight. He passed out of their sight. And the author is trying to say, remember how the high priest in the Old Testament would once a year pass out of your sight and go in to the sanctuary and do a work that we desperately need. Remember that. Well, every, every time that happened, the priest would come back out, and that would happen year in and year out. 
What the author is striving to, to communicate here is Christ, the great high priest, has passed through the heavens. He has left your sight finally and forevermore. It is done. And he is now ministering on your behalf. And so it's actually a, a beautiful description for, for some Hebrews, some, some Jewish believers who have been tempted to go back to what they experienced in the Old Covenant. They, they, they were tempted to say, man, there were some really good things about our life before. And the author of the Hebrews is again and again from all different directions helping them see that what you have now in Christ is so much better. You've got to see that that high priest would come in and out and he would have to again and again make atonement for your sins. By, by the sacrificial system, Christ has passed through the heavens once and for all. And when he returns, that will be the consummation of all things, very different than the high priest of old. And so since he has passed through the heavens, let us hold fast our confession. So the author of Hebrews is speaking of something far more than a spatial journey like that of a completed SpaceX mission. His language passed through the heavens is, is to drive our attention to the exaltation of Christ. It is implied that Christ is now seated at the right hand of the Father. The heavenly venue that Jesus entered as priest is the actual original sanctuary, so to speak, of which the earthly sanctuaries were, were but a copy of what Christ actually entered into in the heavenly sanctuary. And so since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Let us hold fast our confession. I like this, this uh, term that is used here. Let us hold fast our confession. What does it mean for believers to have a confession? What are we confessing? Well, I think there's a lot that we are confessing, and it all has to revolve around our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews helps us by giving Jesus this title, by introducing him as the great high priest, but then he says, Jesus, the Son of God. And so if you're going to have a confession, you need to actually understand who this Jesus is. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Every word used by the author in this letter is inspired by the Spirit of God and is important for us. And so if you are going to understand, well, what, what kind of confession are we confessing? The author is helping us in these verses understand what our confession is. I want you to hear chapter 8, paragraph 2 of the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession. I want you to hear this description because it so helps us understand what is it that we're actually confessing about Jesus the Son of God. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him, who made the world, who upholds and governs all things that he has made, did, when the fullness of time was complete, take upon him himself man's nature 
with all the essential properties and common infirmities of it, yet without sin. Being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, fully God, fully man, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. You may go, man, that was really wordy. But every word describes who this Jesus, the Son of God, really is. And it also helps believers like us understand why it is that he's a great high priest. He is the only one who is able to function in that capacity. A capacity that every one of us, because of our sins and trespasses, desperately needs. In addition to our confession of this historical Jesus, the the confession also has loaded within it referring to the work that Christ has done. So you could say the first part, part A, was the person of Christ, who he is, fully God, fully man. The second part of our confession is his work. So the person and work of Christ makes up the confession that we proclaim. So what about the work of Christ? Well, when you think about the gospel, I hope that you think about some of the words that the Apostle Paul, for example, shares in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is the message of his amazing work on behalf of sinners. It makes up the heart of the Christian faith, And it is what Christians throughout the centuries have been claiming as their confession. Christians believe and confess Jesus Christ, our resurrected King, who right now is alive, ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. And he is the one who has made atonement for sin. In verse 15 of our passage this morning, the author gives the qualifications of the high priest that, please hear this, should encourage us to go to him. What we hear about who Christ is as our high priest should encourage us to go to him. Hear verse 15 again, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect 
has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This verse has a lot packed into it, and it's really important. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. If that kind of does not roll off the tongue, it's because the grammar used here is what, referred to, is, is what is referred to as a double negative. We do not have someone who does not understand or who cannot sympathize. And in the Greek, this double negative is used to actually drive home an emphatic truth. It's to use a force in the readers to hear this and say, he is able, he is more than able to sympathize with our weaknesses. This is just a, a way linguistically to drive home this emphatic force that our great high priest, oh, he is so able to enter into all our weaknesses that we experience here on earth. And so, this really does help us Understand the humanity of Christ. He is, just like the, the high priest of old, a man serving on behalf of the people. He is our representative, holy man and holy God. So the author previously affirmed the son's complete participation in humanity in verse, uh, I'm sorry, in chapter 2, verses 14 and 17, where he talks about him being human flesh and blood, becoming like his brothers in every respect. And I want you to really pay attention here. There is here a crucial expect, or exception, or a difference, you could say, to the similarity between Jesus and other human beings. Now, I know you, you're probably thinking, well, Joel, you just said he's just like us, fully human. I want you to understand why this is so important, that he is, yes, human, fully man, and yet able to, to function as the great high priest. All of this, we're going to probably need several weeks to unpack, but at least here, I want us to start to wrap our minds around what should in us uh, build confidence in, in going to him as our great high priest. So there is here a crucial exception to the similarity between Jesus and other human beings. Though tempted in every way as we are, Jesus withstood every temptation. That in itself puts him in a different category than all of us who have fallen short of the glory of God, right? No one has perfectly obeyed the Father's law, perfectly obeyed the Father's commands. But Jesus is one who actually is without sin. He withstood every temptation. Without this difference, he could not be our perfectly faithful high priest in the service of God. The high priest of old would have to make sacrifices for himself before he could go and make sacrifices for the people. He had to prepare the forgiveness of his own sins in order to even begin to enter into the Holy of Holies. Not so with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the perfect spotless lamb. So that's, that's one thing to keep in mind. There is this difference. And 
This difference is crucially important. This sets him apart from every priest in Aaron's line. And in respect of our alienation from God and imperfection of the best of our services, we need his priestly office to reconcile us and to present us acceptable to God. So both to forgive us our sins and to present us before the Father. It might be a shock to some to hear of Christ's divine dignity and then hear of his astonished sympathy as being fully human. And rightly so. This is a mystery. I, don't not, I do not stand before you with, with complete clarity to be able to articulate all that goes into understanding the Son of God, fully man and fully God. To wrap our minds around this, it reveals to us that we are finite, God is infinite, we need him and his word to give us even glimpses of these glorious truths. His identification with us is real in weakness and being tempted like sinners. The early church fathers were careful not to co-mingle Jesus' divinity and his humanity, and they did this because they did not want to make him a superman or a superhuman where we could not understand, or he could not fully understand us, and we could not fully understand him. And so the co-mingling was very important in the, the beginning articulations of the confessions of the faith, in understanding who Christ was. When I say co-mingling, the, the coming together of divinity and humanity where he's no longer fully human, and, and some would even say no longer fully God if, if they've come together in such a way, uh, if you heard the words in the 1689, there's not confusion uh, in the, the person of Christ. He is very God and very man, yet one Christ. But one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Please hear me again. This meaning is not that our Lord was tempted in every respect exactly as fallen man is tempted. I'm going to explain this. We must not absolutely equate our temptations with Christ's temptations. Some temptations arise from without trials and sufferings coming in. These Christ constantly endured as a man. But also, according to James chapter 1, temptations arise from within as sinful desires. Here, James 1.14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. These Christ never experienced. In other words, we are tempted by the world, by the devil, and by our flesh. While Christ may experience the temptations from the world and the devil, he did not experience that temptation from the flesh the fallen nature. So Galatians chapter 5, verse 17 says it better than I can. Christ never experienced the, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit lusting against the flesh. That was not part of his temptation trial or struggle. We start with the corruption of our nature, which Christ did not have. And so in this sense, if you go all the way back before Genesis 3, 
In this sense, he was in the same position as Adam before he first sinned. I hope that may be helpful to think about. As the incarnate Son of God, Christ faced real temptations, but these temptations did not arise in Christ due to sinful desires. So he felt the full force of the temptation that were thrown at him, and they were in no way, this is important, they were in no way just some academic exercise. What he experienced in temptation was real, and what he overcame was a real victory over temptation. Hear this statement from uh, William G.T. Shedd in his Dogmatic Theology. The army that cannot be conquered can still be attacked. Christ was attacked by Satan and the world as he lived this life on earth. If anything, Christ's temptations were more intense than ours because he never gave in to them. So while the mediator was com- commissioned to die, John 10, 18, he was not commissioned to sin. The human nature of Christ was permitted to function freely and normally. He experienced, he experienced weariness. He experienced all that we experience in, in, in weeping and, and heartache. And I, I want to submit this to you if you're struggling with Christ living a life as we lived and enduring all temptation without sin, if, if this is hard for you to, to wrap your minds around and think, man, that doesn't seem like he's really human, I want you to think of this for just a moment. I actually think that we have this backwards. Some would say that, that Christ didn't, didn't have the full human experience because he didn't sin, and we actually have to question our humanity because it is in and of itself impure. And if anything, I would say that he is more human than we ever will be in the fact that he lived a life sinless before the Father, perfectly obeying him and overcoming the temptations and trials that came his way. So more human than we are in our sinfulness, experiencing what life was to be before or without the fall. I say all of that to say, to drive home this point, Jesus can sympathize with all of our weaknesses because he lived as a human being and experienced the things that we experience. The sympathy of our great high priest is so important for us to believe, to receive, to embrace. According to John Owen, Christ's sympathy with us means three things. First of all, it means that he is concerned for us. Brothers and sisters, please hear this. Your great high priest is concerned for you. Christ is concerned for us when we are hungry. He is concerned for us when we are in trouble. He is concerned for us when we are tempted. Let that truth sink deep into your mind and into your heart. Secondly, Christ's sympathy with us means that he can relieve our suffering. He can provide for our daily needs. He can save us when we are in trouble. He can help us avoid engaging in sin. 
it is always included in this idea of Christ's sympathy to hear and understand that what is being described here is an active help from a great high priest who is alive and ministering on our behalf now. In this context, the stress falls upon the capacity of Christ, our high priest, to help all of those whom are his who are helpless. He actually, in his sympathy, enters into what we're experiencing now. And thirdly, Christ's sympathy with us means that he can experience what we feel emotionally insofar as our emotions are not sinful. So think about this. He rejoices with you when you rejoice. He mourns with us when we mourn over the loss of good and godly things. Our great high priest sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. So think about this for a moment. Prior to the birth of Christ, prior to the incarnation, God was, we see this all throughout the Old Old Testament, was concerned for his people. He felt sorrow for his people. He helped his people in times of trouble. And then when you see the birth of Christ, the incarnation, and understand that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, humbled himself and came in the likeness of man. How much more does God now enter in and is sympathetic to our weaknesses. Christ, who is fully God, became fully man and can truly sympathize with all of your weaknesses. That should be mind-blowing, heart-melting, as you know now who to run to, who knows exactly what it's like to live this hard, difficult life. In verse 16, he tells us, the readers and us, to go to Christ for the necessary grace and strength to carry out that confession. We are to hold fast to our confession. Here, verse 16 again, let us then with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we're, we're shifting back. Old Testament priest, New Testament, our great high priest. Old Testament priests could only offer sacrifices that would delay God's judgment against sin. Their sacrifices, in a sense, could only buy time. Jesus' sacrifice, however, accomplished complete atonement for sin once and for all. This was only possible because he was without sin, totally unlike all of the high priests that came before. And so the author of Hebrews calls his readers and us to recognize that the high priestly ministry of Jesus has achieved for the people of the new covenant— what Israel never experienced in the old, never enjoyed, and namely, this is what it is, immediate access to God and the freedom to draw near to him continually. Please try to grasp at this reality. 
immediate access to a holy and righteous God and freedom to continually come into his presence. There is no longer a veil separating sinners and a holy God. That veil has been torn from top to bottom because of Christ's work on the cross. This is amazing news to those who need help every hour of the day, who need ministering to, who need comfort, who need aid, who need support when we are battling against temptation. The curtain is wide open, and we now, because of Christ, our great high priest, freely can come into the presence of God. And it's not just that we're coming into his presence, but this description of the throne of grace is inviting us to experience his love poured out upon us, his care poured out. Everything that you have heard about a good shepherd in the Old Testament is realized completely and wholly because of Christ, our good shepherd, who leads us into the presence of God Almighty to experience fellowship and communion with the one who gives us all that we need. What an, an amazing door that has been opened. That's where the confidence that he calls on believers to have. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. In the New Testament, confidence characterizes fearless proclamation. Here, it entails the worshiper's experience of divine favor as they approach a holy and awesome God. In Christ, you, brothers and sisters, have divine favor with a holy and righteous God. With a cleaned conscience, cleansed conscience, not weighed down with guilt or shame, because of the finished work of our great high priest, we boldly, with confidence, can enter into the throne of grace. If you are outside of Christ, meaning you are not trusting in him, you have not repented of your sins and actually seen him for who he really is, the only way for a sinner to have access to the Father, may this be the day where you repent and believe and receive him by faith and experience what it's like to have your sins washed clean and given the gift of eternal life and experience that eternal life now by the work of the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Because the Lord Jesus is almighty, having absolute power over sin, us, feeble and sorely tired saints may turn to him in confidence, always, every moment of every day, seeking aid from the one who is able and will provide. Only he who has triumphed over sin, both in life and death, can rescue us, provide for us in our times of need. God's grace brings timely help to those who are in desperate need of it. When temptation and suffering is most intense, 
Those opportune times, brothers and sisters, the access is wide open to cry out for help. To leave the darkness and flee into the light and plead for mercy and grace from the one who pours it out, gives it lavishly because of his son. So since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us this morning hold fast our confession. Let us pray. Our Father, we are so very thankful for the good news of the gospel, the good news that only the begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest, can make available to sinners like us. As we revel in the good news, the grace and mercy that has been poured out in the salvation of rebels, may we remember the Son of God. He is the, the heir of all things, through whom all things were created. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. He is the one who upholds all things by his powerful word. After making purification for our sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That Christ we praise this morning who is our great high priest, who has entered in, became flesh and blood, and experienced all the hardships and temptations of this life and truly can sympathize with our weaknesses, yet without sin. Father, may our response this, this morning be praise and worship as, as we respond to this glorious revelation, what you have accomplished through your Son, and who is right now ministering on behalf of his people. Father, for those who do not have a great high priest, may this be the day where eyes are able to behold the glory of the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, the one who humbled himself and became man, lived a life that we could not live, died the death that we deserve to die so that we might enter into the throne of grace and experience your mercy and grace every moment of every day for all eternity. May those who are unsaved, dead in their sins, see where hope lies. And may we in Christ fix our eyes upon this great high priest and with confidence draw near. And we pray this in his glorious name. Amen.